Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. St. Louis Symphony Orchestra music conductor laureate Leonard Slatkin is with us in studio. And despite his photo mistakenly being inserted into the Emmy's In Memoriam tribute a few weeks ago, he appears to be alive and well. In fact, this weekend, he again takes the podium at Powell Hall. In addition to the local premiere of Mozart's Oboe Concerto, he's conducting the world premiere of Variations on a Theme of Paganini. It was composed in celebration of Slatkin's 75th birthday. He is also revisiting similar compositions from 1996 that celebrated his time in St. Louis. That's the opening brass fanfare from the piece in 1996. And yes, we'll hear that again at Powell Hall this weekend. So Leonard Slatkin, without more fanfare, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So first off, you're not dead yet. Not yet. How did you find out that you'd been featured on the Emmys in memoriam? I was in Ireland. I'd conducted a week of concerts with the RTE Orchestra in Dublin, and my wife and I decided, since we had some free time, to just hop in a car and drive around and see the country. So we were somewhere near Derry, and we were staying overnight in a lovely hotel. I happened to wake up at four in the morning, being a passionate baseball fan, always Cardinals, of course. I went to my computer to see how things were. I know the games had taken place. It was on a Sunday. And lo and behold, the inbox was getting pretty full with messages. So at four in the morning, I discovered that I was no longer around. (laughs) But I hadn't seen anything other than just this mistaken photo and people wondering what had happened. What was troublesome, of course, is why were people who thought I was dead writing to me? Right. I don't know that there are anything such as computers or internet connections in the afterlife. Maybe. So I went back to bed, and then the next morning, uh, there were several requests for interviews. And I didn't want to make a big deal out of it because, for me, It was more the slight to Andre Previn, who was the person who had passed away. They put your photo with his segment. So I did three. I did one for a radio station. I did one for a newspaper. And then there came this request from the Jimmy Kimmel show. And it was actually quite funny to listen to. Let's give just a a brief listen to the very beginning here. This was kind of unbelievable. There was a mix-up during the In Memoriam montage last night. Oh, look at this. Okay, so that man is not Andre Previn. That is another conductor, a gentleman named Leonard Slatkin, who is the music director laureate for the Detroit Sympathy, Sympathy Orchestra and is, uh, is alive. Uh, I say Sympathy Symphony Orchestra. And apparently he was just as surprised as anyone to find out that he passed away. So we tracked him down. He's in Ireland right now. And joining us live, I think, please welcome the newly resurrected Leonard Slatkin. Hello, Leonard. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> now, I guess my first question is, are you dead right now? Uh, some people might wish that, <laughs> especially among my conductor colleagues. But no, I was really quite shocked to learn that in giving their best to Andre Previn, 
they wound up giving their worst to me. <laughs> so it was overall a, a very funny conversation. And I was I was very intrigued. You mentioned on the show that Roger Ebert mm-hmm. let you get a sneak peek at the obituary for yourself yeah. uh, that was on file. That must have been a very odd read. I was very good friends with Roger and respected him perhaps more than any other person writing for film. Having grown up in Hollywood, I was a child of motion pictures, movies. Roger always called them movies. He never said motion pictures as far as I know. Certainly not cinema. And I would go to screenings with him. So I got to see a lot of films in advance when I was visiting Chicago, either conducting or listening to concerts there. This is during my years of being the assistant conductor here. Uh, So we had come out of the screening and he asked me if I wanted to see the newsroom where he worked. And I did, and I went, and it was absolutely perfect. His desk was a mess. It was just everything he wanted. And then he asked me if I wanted to see the obituary. Now, you're in the early years of computers, so it was a little harder to get access to stuff. But there it was, and it was about four or five paragraphs long. And I thought, that's really depressing. (laughs) It does seem depressing. And what he said is, all newspapers keep this kind of thing on pretty much anybody who has any sort of notoriety in the public eye, and a lot of people who don't, of course. It's really unusual to see your life boiled down to that. It's kind of like reading what they write on a book cover or something like that, or or a bio that gets sent out. That's it. But every newspaper's ready just in case something happens in the next few minutes. They're all ready to go. Maybe that's why you were getting all those emails in Ireland. They wanted to know whether to queue up the obituary. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But after that show, uh, I I kind of put the, uh, I don't want to say it's an incident, but I did realize something. I found out that within 24 hours, more than 65,000 people had seen this clip online. And for somebody basically invested in the classical music industry, that's an amazing number. You don't have that very often. So in some sense, there was a chance at least to honor Andre and talk about his contributions, but also to get my own name out there to people who really don't know who I am or what I do. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, and a, a good opportunity, and I'm, I'm sure going on Kimmel only helped with that as well. Yeah. So, um, well, let's talk about the real reason you're here, and that's not just to relieve, uh, to relive your comedic triumph or to <laughs> contemplate to mortality. My death. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, in 1996, you conducted the initial five variations on a theme of Paganini as a celebration of your time with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. So, why are we revisiting that right now? I celebrated my 70th, 75th birthday, 70th, I wish, 75th on September 1st. And this year, I decided rather than commission one big piece from a existing composer, and my go-to person for that would have been my wife anyway, I would do something a little more unexpected. I remembered these sets of variations and thought, wouldn't it be interesting to add five more to this mix. Actually, it was six because I was one of the composers as well in the original. I got in touch with five orchestras where I had close associations here, Washington, uh, Lyon, my French orchestra, the orchestra in Washington, D.C. is uh, involved, Nashville, where I was sort of the music advisor. And they all agreed and 
we selected five more composers. The works arrived, and I had to integrate them into the existing ones, trying to see if I could make a full work out of it. I think it's going to be about 16 minutes long, maybe a little more, because the rules for the composers were pretty simple. Piece had to be between 30 and 90 seconds. Oh, wow. So these are very brief. They're variations. They're, they're short. Mine's a little longer at the end. You, you gave yourself that now luxury. I gave myself, because I, there was a reason for that. I needed to reference some stylistic element of each of the composers who I had commissioned, in addition to referencing Paganini. So they all came in, put them together. I had to write some connective material to make it feel like a more connective piece, not just a series of little individual works. And as we're speaking, we've had our first rehearsal. Hmm. And I had a chance to see if it all works. And the answer is, yes, it does. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's very humorous in many cases. Others took a more serious tack. I think this kind of thing is not normal, where you have a potpourri of composers, but there have been other examples of multiple composers writing for a singular occasion. Mm -hmm. But this is the first time where everybody has been given a set of rules. As I said, the length. They were not supposed to put happy birthday to you in there. Two of the composers cheated. Oh. And there was one other musical reference I asked them not to make because I already had it in my variation. I didn't want it to occur twice. I think the audiences are going to have a lot of fun with this. And if nothing else, in the span of these 16 or so minutes, they're probably going to hear more American composers than they'll hear in a whole season. Yeah, it seems like this great little sampler. Now, yeah. as you mentioned, um, your wife is one of these composers, and your son is as well. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about your wife's piece. It's called The Paganini Stomp. Yes. My wife is a very distinguished composer, well-recognized and established. In recent years, among things she's been doing is transcribing arrangements made by my father. In the last couple of years of his life, he did different kinds of lighter music arrangements. One album he made took classical music and sort of set them in different popular idioms like country, western music, uh, music type things. And my wife decided she wanted to kind of emulate one of these arrangements in her own work, which indeed ends with the orchestra stomping one foot down on the last beat. So that's why it's called that. My son's piece, he's 25, he lives out in LA, he's composing for motion pictures and television. His piece is called Paganini Goes to the Movies because my son is writing for the movies. So if you listen very closely, you will hear a John Williams reference. Oh, how and nice. And John and I are very, very close. So that uh, was that connection. I had to include him. Uh, other composers also use different elements of parts of our own relationships. Uh, there are a lot of in-jokes that the audience won't give us quite another, get. Give us another example of part of your relationship or an in-joke that the composer has sort of ran with. John Corleano, 
who was the composer who was the St. Louis end of this group of composers, wrote his variation, which is called Apotheosis, and then in parentheses, he says 90 seconds, which was the outer limit of the time I allowed. And his challenge, of course, is to see if I can actually hit it in 90 seconds <laughs> and be right and, on the dot. And will that be a challenge? Yeah, it's yes. hard because it's slow. Okay. Fast ones are easy. So that's that's one example. Another one would be that uh, William Balcom, another composer we championed here, he snuck in part of the Chopin funeral march, which... <laughs> Seemed like That's a, a little, little cruel. yeah. That was. Uh, is he referencing the Emmys or is this a? No, his piece was one of the original this. ones, but oh, already okay. he was contemplating this kind of thing. <laughs> this, so, I, it's nice to know that musicians can be so hard on each other. The same kind of ribbing that. Well, we I wouldn't have commissioned anybody who didn't have a great sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, so we're here today talking to Leonard Slatkin, and he's talking about um, the show that he will be conducting this weekend at the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. Um, among the composers are his wife, Cindy McTee, his son, Daniel Slatkin, and then there's three other new pieces um, that are part of this these new five variations that he's added to the previous variations. It must have been a real challenge to make all these pieces come together. Um, different themes, different sounds. Yes. What was the hardest part of that? The hardest part was probably probably clearing all the rights because each composer has their own publisher, they have their own set of ideas of how their variation would go. So my job was to turn it over to St. Louis, who was the instigator, as it were, in terms of coordinating everything. They had to get all these rights cleared. Once all that got done, everybody wrote their pieces. It came to me. I looked at the original pieces from the first set of variations, tried to figure out what the new ordering of the works would be. And in a couple cases, I had to write some connective material to allow the percussion instruments to be able to be accessed by the musicians. So they have to move some things. Hmm. So I had to write some material that didn't involve those instruments so they had time to get from one instrument to the other. It's interesting, the logistics of this. We never think about that as, as audience members, but you have to literally get someone from point A to point B. Oh, you do in the percussion, and there's a lot of different instruments. Uh, in this piece, with all the composers writing as they did, there's unusual ones like the water gong. That's where you mm -hmm. take a gong and you do a kind of tremolo or a roll on it, and you move it up and down into a pail of water. And it changes the sound. And then there's a water jug where you have a jug filled half full, one player holds it, the other takes a couple of mallets and does a roll on that, and they tilt the jug and the pitch changes. So there's stuff like that that they have to get to, and I had to write little material to allow them to get to those instruments. And how does that work? Is there just someone on board at every major orchestra who's prepared to play the water jug if, if pressed into service? The principal percussionist's job, among other things, is to assign who does what. Hmm. Is it taught in a university or conservatory? No. But it's clear from the instructions uh, what to do, and then they figure out who's best suited to do it. Okay. that's Wow. I've never thought about that either. Um, now, also this weekend, as part of this same bill of fare, uh, the symphony orchestra will be performing Mozart's Oboe Concerto. Mm -hmm. It was apparently composed in 1777, and this is the very first time that this orchestra is performing this major work. That's a surprise to me. Uh, I think the reason, if that's indeed the case, might be 
because the work is also played as a flute concerto. Oh, okay. And chances are that flutists have played it here. It might indeed, though, be the first time an oboist has done the version that Mozart wrote originally. It's a very entertaining, very lovely piece. And it's so good when you have an orchestra such as the St. Louis Symphony, which can boast fine musicians in every section, and one of their own can come and stand right in front of the orchestra and be one of the soloists, just ranking up there with the finest. And there will also be sort of the final piece on this bill is A Hero's Life by Strauss. Uh, Why this particular piece? I chose this for several reasons, one of which is that it was a signature work of the orchestra when I was here as music director. We took it on tour, played it in Europe, and in fact, at one performance in Vienna, of all places, the musical capital, the concertmaster had fallen ill, and the associate concertmaster took over the very demanding solo violin part, which represents Strauss's wife really one of the most difficult solos in all the repertoire. And that associate was David Halen. By the end of the season, our then concertmaster had to step down because of illness. Rather than go through the lengthy and arduous procedure of auditions, I went to the orchestra committee and I said, why don't we just put David in the chair? If he can play this piece and knock everybody out in Vienna, he should be just fine here. They all agreed, and David became the concertmaster. Wow. So that's kind of ended up having this significance to his career as, yes. as well as some resonance for you. Yes. And it's a great piece. It's a reflection by the composer on his own life to that point. Some people have been critical of it because they don't think oh, music is a place for autobiography especially when he takes aim at his critics, which Hmm. he does. But then he references in one other section all the pieces he's already written. Now, he has yet to write his great operas, but this would be not exactly the last orchestral piece he wrote, but a kind of summation of his life to that point. And already firing back at his critics. I love it. Yeah. So I understand you recently moved back to St. Louis. I've been here for a little over a year now. When I stepped down from the Detroit Symphony, a year and three months ago, I guess, my wife and I were trying to decide where we would go. I didn't want to be a music director anymore. I've done that for more than 40 years. Mm -hmm. But I still wanted to conduct, so I'm not retiring. But I also have other projects. And we needed a place that would work for logistic reasons, but also one that felt comfortable. First thought, of course, was to go to the West Coast where my son is. Mm -hmm. But between earthquakes and floods and taxes and property and all that, fires, uh, no. Then we thought maybe somewhere in Arizona or New Mexico, because we love it there. Didn't really know anybody. That didn't seem right. Thought a little bit about the Northwest. Eh, too cold. And then... I was conducting here, it was a year ago, almost a year ago exactly, I guess, and Cindy, who didn't know St. Louis so well, had to go out to Frontenac to pick up something, and she really enjoyed the drive Hmm. to get out there, saying, this is really lovely here. So the next day she started looking around, didn't find anything, but a month later, she did. And so we had a house that was partially under construction, allowing us the opportunity to, there was this kind of 
figure out where we wanted things to be. Mm-hmm. And we chose to move here. We still have a lot of friends. We have not anything near the driving distances that we had in Detroit. It took 35 minutes to get to the airport. Oh, yeah. Here, you know, 12 minutes from One there. of the great advantages. Yes. You're, you're 15 minutes from everywhere. Yeah. Unfortunately for me in my career, to get to most places I have to get to, I have to change places, uh, you know, change planes. Mm-hmm. And in Detroit, that's one real positive there. The airport, because of the automobile industry, allows flights pretty much to anywhere in the world. But but St. Louis okay. still, you still chose it over Detroit. We're, uh, well, we're very flattered. Have you ever been to Detroit in February? <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, you're right. It's, it's grim. Do you find that the city has changed a lot since you last lived here? It's a yes and no question. I'm very familiar with it because I've come back almost every year to conduct. Some of the neighborhoods are, are the same. I'm pleased to see the downtown area just completely transformed over the course of the years. I think that there are other elements that I like, the feeling of both a big city and a small town at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's really a lovely thing. There remains a strong interest in the culture. It is probably a city that is one of the better kept secrets Nationally, they don't think about St. Louis quite so much. Maybe in the future there'll be more interest on the part of national and international corporations to settle here. A couple of them are doing well. Others should take advantage of the unique things that the area has to offer. But I still feel the same connection. Now remember, my grandfather in 1911 settled here from Russia. My father was born here, played in the orchestra. I was here 27 years, and my son was born here. So the four-generation connection made this move very, very easy. That's Leonard Slatkin. He's music conductor laureate of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. He takes the podium this Saturday and Sunday to perform the world premiere of his 75th birthday celebration, as well as works by Mozart and Strauss. And if you can't make it to Powell Hall, you can listen to the Saturday concert here on St. Louis Public Radio. Our coverage begins at 8. We also want to invite you to a special edition of St. Louis on the Air being recorded this Friday at 7 p.m. NPR Silicon Valley correspondent Arthi Shahani will join us in Grand Center to talk about her new memoir, Here We Are. It's a free event, but we ask that you register in advance at stlpublicradio.org events. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.